and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. This is our last podcast of 2020. What a year it's been. Hope you all are doing well. Just a wild ride. What a crazy ride. Uh, But, you know, I just want to acknowledge and appreciate all of you for listening. We continue to grow this podcast. I'm still blown away by those of you that listen and shoot me a text or an email or write us a review on iTunes. It just touches my heart and really uh, means the world to me. And this has been an amazing labor of love. And we'll be back at it for season five. That's kind of crazy to say. Season five in, in January. So Hope you enjoy the holidays. Hopefully you'll be with some people that you're close with, family, friends during these times and and we can all maybe reflect on on this past year and and let's hope 2021 is just a little bit different, just a little bit. And uh, once again, just want to thank you all for listening. Uh, also, if you enjoy any of these conversations, once again, it really does mean a lot to us. If you go over to iTunes and write us a review, uh, leave us a rating. Uh, it does help us expand our reach as a podcast. And same goes for the book. So if you're familiar with my work, you know that I wrote a book in 2020 called Shift Your Mind. Uh, It came out in October uh, and it is available for audio as well through Audible. Uh, So you can purchase it at Amazon. You can get the hard copy or the audio book. Once again, thank you for everybody who has already done so. And hopefully you are enjoying the book or have enjoyed the book. So head over there. Uh, If you like this conversation, then you probably will like the book as well. So thank you all. Uh, Look forward to seeing you, hearing you, and talking to you in 2021. Now to today's guest. Deanne Turner is somebody who I reached out to because I was really fascinated by her background. Uh, I read her book, which is called Bet on Talent. She also had a book called It's My Pleasure. Uh, Both are best-selling books. She's also an acclaimed keynote speaker, and I'd heard her on a few podcasts and was really drawn to her energy and how clear and competent she is when it comes to human development. And the reason that she's so clear and competent is because she is a 33-year veteran working at Chick-fil-A. And if you're familiar with Chick-fil-A, they are pretty incredible when it comes to culture and how they develop their people and how they think about service. And Deanne was a big part 
of that process, that journey, and their success. So she retired from there in 2018. And at the time, she was a vice president of talent and vice president of sustainability at Chick-fil-A. She was actually the first female VP at Chick-fil-A. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in this conversation where we dive into culture, leadership, uh, talent, onboarding. She will really go into the weeds on what she looked for at Chick-fil-A. And during her career, she worked closely with Chick-fil-A's founder, who's a legend, Truett Cathy, and other key leaders as an architect for their organization's culture. Turner was responsible for thousands of selections of Chick-fil-A franchisees. And you'll hear from her today, and you'll hear it in her book. She really believes that those franchisees are the heartbeat of what makes Chick-fil-A Chick-fil-A. She also led the talent management team, uh, staff learning and development, diversity and inclusion, culture and engagement. And then most re- recently, she launched and led the sustainability function, focusing on Chick-fil-A's strategy to implement sustainable practices at what was then a $10.5 billion company. Just an incredible company that uh, is, I think, the most profitable fast food chain in the country. Today, she leads her own organization called Deanne Turner and Associates, where she writes books, as we mentioned, speaks to over 50 audiences a year, and consults and coaches leaders globally. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Deanne Turner. Deanne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you. I, I recently read your latest book, Bet on Talent. I know you've got another book coming, and there was a book that also was before Bet on Talent, uh, which we're going to talk about as well. And I first heard about you from Jamie and Christian, who's the head men's basketball coach at George Washington University. And we talked about my pleasure. And I've also heard about you from my executives. And it's one of the concepts that we talk about when I do executive coaching all the time is this idea of no problem compared to my pleasure. And since your book and the idea of it has hit me. Um, it's something that you just start noticing. You just start noticing the language that you're using. So let's go into my pleasure to start. I know it's probably a comfortable place for you to talk about because it was ingrained into you. But let's let's talk about my pleasure and that concept of that and where that originated from and, and give us some background on, on the idea of it. Sure, Brian. Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to be with you today. And thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast as I was coming along in Chick-fil-A several uh, decades ago, a couple decades ago, uh, Truett Cathy spent some time with Horst Schultze at the Ritz-Carlton Company. And he was very impressed with an experience he would have every time he would go there. And his experience was that when he would say thank you, the employees would respond with my pleasure. There were other things they did too. For instance, they had this mantra that um, their mission was ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And he loved the, the way it made him feel as a guest there. And so he decided that he liked it much better than what he was hearing in his restaurants. He would go in his restaurant and a guest would say, thank you. And the team member might say, you're welcome, which is what I grew up learning to say. Or they might say even worse, no problem. Well, of course, it's not a problem to serve, right? So Truett decided that this phrase, my pleasure, was much more pleasant. And so he came to the annual meeting of the Chick-fil-A franchisees, and he stood up before them, and he told them a much longer version of his experience at the Ritz-Carlton. 
And he asked them, he said, when your guests say thank you, I would like your team members to respond with my pleasure. Well, we went away and nothing changed. Nobody said my pleasure. It just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening at uh, what is known as the support center, the corporate office of Chick-fil-A. It wasn't happening in the restaurants. He came back a second year. He told the story again because there were more people there then as we were growing rapidly. He made the same request. We went away and nothing happened again. Well, Brian, in the interest of time, and I think you have more questions to ask me, I'll speed up and tell you this went on for 10 years. Truett came back every year telling the story again and making the same request of his franchisees. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, wait a minute, this is the CEO of the company, and he's asking his organization to do something, and for 10 years they haven't done it. How can that be? Well, when most of these people went into business with Chick-fil-A, there were only three rules. Truett had three rules for them. He didn't lead a business with a lot of rules. He had principles. But his three rules were don't open on Sunday, don't change the menu, and put the money in the bank. That's what they were accustomed to. So they thought my pleasure was simply a suggestion. They didn't recognize it as a rule. Well, in the 10th year, the organization has grown enormously before, since Truett started having that conversation. And he came to the podium and he very uncharacteristically sort of slammed his fist down on the podium. He said, now I mean it. When your guests say thank you, I want your team members to respond, my pleasure. He had us all stand up and practice multiple times saying my pleasure. Well, when we left that day, his oldest son, Dan Cathy, who's now the CEO of Chick-fil-A, he said, I think dad means it. And so we started with a rule, which was very unusual Chick-fil-A. In fact, it, it really almost derailed any, everything um, around the concept because we had made a rule to say my pleasure. Well, the real heroes of the story at Chick-fil-A are the Chick-fil-A franchisees, smart, capable leaders. And they knew if they went back to their restaurants and started telling their team members, many of whom, of whom are teenagers, that they must respond with this phrase, my pleasure, when a guest says, thank you, that it would become just a rule. And you, it would become very rote and mechanical so that when you went to a Chick-fil-A restaurant and, and you said, thank you, you would hear, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, it's my pleasure. Much like some of those videos you sometimes see that people have sarcastically posted about it. But instead, the franchisees went back to their team members and they explained the why. They taught them a principle. And they told them this in so many words, it is our pleasure to serve the guests because you see, without the guest, we obviously don't have a business. We don't have paychecks and promotions and raises and team outings and holiday parties and a scholarship program. We don't have any of those things if the guests don't come. So of course, it's our pleasure to serve them. And we want to communicate that not just with our words, but with our actions too. So when you go into a Chick-fil-A restaurant and you say, thank you, and the team member responds, my pleasure, usually I find that it's always with great sincerity. It's my pleasure. Of course. No, Deanne, How can I help you? What I'm thinking of is our military. And I've had so many amazing military professionals on this podcast. I, I don't even know. I've had over 200 episodes, I would bet I've had over 10 people and from all different sectors of our military. All of them tend to be uncomfortable with when someone says for, to them, thank you for your service. 
And we've talked about it on the podcast that they feel uncomfortable. And, and a lot of them have said to me that the reason they feel uncomfortable is because they signed up for it. They, this is something they wanted to do. They're proud to have done it. And they've gotten a lot of benefits from doing it. And I'm almost thinking about the, the people at Chick-fil-A this needs to be ingrained. This is something that they enjoy doing. This is something that they want to do. They want to serve it. So it genuinely is their pleasure to make that experience a happy one. It's not a problem for them to do it. This is their pleasure. Is that what you're sort of hinting at here? Is that this was a choice that the people had to make and step into and want to do? And then you talked about the why and know why they're doing it. Why do you think it ended up landing uh, this time around? Well, you know, you make a great point about our military, of whom I'm very thankful for their service, too. And it is a little different, though, because they've signed up at a different stage in life. It's a different level of commitment. If you think about it, for a lot of these Chick-fil-A employees, it's their very first job ever. So they really have to, the very basics of that have to be explained. They have to understand the why behind the service and the level of service that they're providing. You know, the really great thing that happened from all this, this was just the beginning of a kickoff uh, to a whole service model. Uh, it, you might remember this, but what had happened years ago is that the competitors started copying Chick-fil-A's famous chicken sandwich. Now, not exactly, but they one of them even called it a southern fried chicken sandwich with two pickle slices. So they started to imitate the product. In some cases, the product was cheaper. Now, I don't know why anybody would want to eat that other one, by the way, but some people did. So um, Chick-fil-A had to find a different level to compete on. And so they chose service. And so what they did was to teach the team members this idea of second mile service. Now, we know what first mile service is. First mile is being sure you get the order right and reasonable in a reasonable time period and with friendly service. But second mile, oh, Brian, second mile is competitive advantage. And so what Chick-fil-A did... Again, they almost derailed it because they started with a rule. It's, it's a little bit of a long story, but in short, they saw some opportunities to assert um, what second mile service looked like at first was to uh, mimic some of the service you would expect in a fine dining restaurant. So one of the things they did, for example, Dan Cathy had been in a Chick-fil-A restaurant and he saw one of those great big two foot pepper grinders that you often see in a fine dining restaurant. And the... Uh, he asked the franchisee, he said, what do you do with that? He said, well, when a guest orders a salad, then we take that pepper grinder and walk over to the table and ask them if they'd like fresh ground pepper. Well, Dan loved that idea. It matched his vision for this fine dining experience in a fast food restaurant. And so much like what his dad had done a few years previous with the My Pleasure statement, Dan did the same thing. He went to the annual convention uh, this only happened once instead of 10 times, but he went to the annual convention and he told the franchisees, when you get back to your hotel room, you're going to have one of these great big pepper grinders there in your hotel room. Take it and, went and teach your team members to grind fresh ground pepper on salads when guests order them. Well, again, the, the franchisees were confused because they had those three rules, remember? And all of a sudden they had this rule, grind the pepper. And it was very confusing. And so what we learned is, that really we couldn't make a rule around service. We had to create a principle because what happened with this pepper grinder, you know, in the 33 years I, I worked at the Chick-fil-A corporate office, never ever did we have a theft that I'm aware of ever. But you know, the restaurant environment's a little different. Well, those pepper grinders cost $82 a piece and sometimes they would grow legs and run out the door. 
Well, when that happened, because it was a rule, grind the pepper, the operator or the franchisee had to replace that pepper grinder. So that was one problem. The other problem is it didn't resonate in every market. You know, in the South, we're used to people coming over and talking to us while we have our meal and doing what some people in the restaurant industry call table touches. But, you know, in other areas like New York City and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and Seattle and places like that, they go to fast food restaurants because it's fast. And here they were coming over to the table and interrupting their meal. So we backed up and we said, wait a minute, what we really want you to do is provide an element of second mile service on every visit for every guest. And then we told the, the franchisees, you figure out how to do that. You do what's best in your community and for your guest. And boy, they taught that principle to the team members and it became something they outdid each other. on. we started getting phone calls back at the office and emails and letters about team members that were changing tires in the parking lot and jumping off dead batteries and going dumpster diving for discarded dental appliances all kinds of acts of kindness just because we gave them a principle. So this whole idea of, you know, teaching the why behind it and teaching a principle instead of making a rule really became the hallmark of Chick-fil-A's culture and made the difference um, for those employees about the way they treat the guest. We're going to talk about talent because your book is just loaded with franchisee stories. And it's clear in reading your book that those are the people that you have just this immense appreciation for and gratitude for, and that those are the people that have been become the heartbeat of the organization. So we're definitely going to talk about franchisees. Before we do that, I want to go to Truett because you said a couple of things that made me think a little bit. Number one, he goes to Ritz Carlton and says, you know what, we're going to steal this phrase from the Ritz Carlton and put it into our fast food joint. And I think about ideas. I always say, I don't have any original ideas. All of the ideas that I have are an amalgamation of all the people I've ever been around, every book I've ever read, every podcast I've listened to, every movie I've ever watched, because that whether consciously or subconsciously comes into my mind. And then that's how I became me. And so the first thing I'd be curious about with Truett is how that, how that was felt from people around him when he would come in with an innovative idea or something that from the inside, looking in at your perspective, like, wait, are we really going to use this idea? This may be crazy, right? I think innovators are often thought to be crazy. So I'd be curious given that you got to spend time with this man, what he was like and what you learned from him. And the second piece of it is I do want to go to that moment where he's banging his hand on the table saying, this is something that needs to get done and why that did actually lead to change because we talk about leadership all the time. So the first part is learning about Truett and maybe some of his genius. And then the second piece is why you think that it landed the 10th time when he was more convicted in it this time around. You know, Truett was, he was an army veteran. He went to the, into the service after high school. And so he didn't have a college education. So he got his education in the real world, running a business starting at age 26. He and his brother pooled their resources and opened their very first restaurant. It was three tools, excuse me, three tables and six stools there in a, in a little place just uh, right outside the Atlanta airport, not far from the Atlanta airport in hateful Georgia. And so that was Truett's education. That was where he started. And he used to love to, and he quoted lots of other people. He let, read lots of books and he shared the people that he uh, learned from. But one of the quotes I love from Truett, and I think it's very, very used it ever since I went to work at Chick-fil-A when I was 21 years old. 
You'll be the same person five years from now as you are today, except for the books that you read and the people that you meet. Charlie Tremendous Jones, by the way, is credited with that. And Truett quoted it often. So he was always learning from other people. And some and um, his ideas were genius most of the time. I mean, the he would tell you that there wasn't anything so special about that chick chicken sandwich that he invented. He invented the chicken sandwich back in the 1960s. And, um, but you know, it is a craveable taste and no one has ever made a chicken sandwich that is exactly like that one. It's very special indeed. He would tell you that wasn't such a big deal, but it was pretty genius. His franchise agreement was pretty genius. Uh, it's not your typical franchisee agreement where somebody uh, picks a territory and has a lot of money and goes into business to make a lot more money. Truett had something different in mind. He wanted to give entrepreneurs who really wanted the opportunity to be their own boss an opportunity to do so. These are people that didn't necessarily have the funds to do it, but they had the energy and the enthusiasm and the motivation to be successful. And they were willing to protect his brand and his good name. And so he selected people to go into business with him at a fairly small investment um, to receive a pretty healthy reward on the back end, given the investment. How did how did he figure out who to, who to give that opportunity to? Because I would imagine there's a long line of people as this thing starts to churn out that are saying, "Hey, pick me, pick me, pick me." Were there any qualities that he was looking for in that those entrepreneurs? Well, we've kind of come full, full circle because number one, he was looking for people willing to serve. Uh, whether you're serving guests as a Chick Fil A team member or your franchisee serving guests and your team members, or your Chick-fil-A support center staff member, uh, everybody in that organization is serving somebody. So first of all, he was looking for people willing to serve. Um, secondly, he was looking for leaders, not managers, not fast food managers, but leaders, people who knew how to attract and keep both employees and customers, uh, people who would be involved in the community and who would um, not just be uh, a distant leader, but would be a hands-on leader in their restaurant, somebody who would be involved with their team members and be interested in their growth and development. So it was, uh, yes, it was a very long list of people. Uh, in fact, the last year that I was at Chick-fil-A, which has been a couple of years ago, I think that Chick-fil-A had about 60,000 inquiries of people to be franchisees for about 110 locations. Um, and so the, if you did the percentage on that, you can see how very, very difficult it is to have that opportunity. Um, I, I do want to tell you, we're talking about innovation though, Brian, let's not lose this idea because I want to tell you about a, a story about one time when Truett wanted to do something really different and it didn't work so well. Um, I told you about some of the great things he did with the operator agreement, the chicken sandwich and many, many other things. But when he had been in the restaurant industry for 50 years, uh, Chick-fil-A was honoring him by opening a concept in his name. It was called Truett's Grill at the time. They've since renamed those concepts, but at that time it was called Truett's Grill. It was located outside of Atlanta. And they were putting this together and it was to celebrate 50 years. So Truett was looking back at many of the things that had started when he was first in the restaurant business. Well, one of the items that he wanted on the menu at that restaurant were fried chicken feet. Now, that is a very, very odd thing, but you see, he grew up uh, very poor. His mom ran a, a boarding house during the Depression. She served chicken 
every Sunday to all the guests. And there, and Truett being one of the younger children in his family, there wasn't much left when the plate got passed around to him. And in in those days, they cooked everything. So he's very familiar with eating fried chicken feet. We put pressure on the guy who ran supply chain at the time to find those, to find those, and and ultimately. As I understand it, it didn't end up on the menu simply because he couldn't supply it. And uh, but so he so some of those innovations you asked if, if, if we ever questioned that was probably one we weren't so sure about, especially when Truett went into our company cafeteria, fried them up himself, and went around and served them on a platter uh, while we were eating lunch. And then the banging on why, why do you think that they went they went for it this time? Why is it the tenth time? The, the, my pleasure. All right. We're, it, it resonated with the franchisees and you did a good job connecting then why the franchisees were able to get their people to buy in, but fill in the gap for me as far as why it resonated with them this 10th time and how they, why they really were convicted that this is something that they need to put into their, their restaurants. Well, interestingly, because what I said was, you know, it was Dan who basically said, here's the rule, you know, dad's made it clear, dad being true. He's made it clear. He was, you know, he was very firm about it, the pounding of the fist, the firmness of his statement, the asking us to practice it. So Dan actually made the rule. It was the franchisees who set the example, who went out and taught the principal to their team members instead of making a rule. And actually, in this case, I think that the franchisees had as much influence on how it came about to become natural nomenclature, even when the office, I think at the office, we were saying my pleasure because it was a rule but they were actually practicing the principle in the field. And ultimately, I think it was the field, the franchisees and the team members that even influenced us back at the office around the principle of it. And you mentioned franchisees, really, he's looking for leadership. He's looking for qualities of leadership. And the book is really also about your journey. And I think it starts by saying it starts with a flat tire. And you sort of talk about uh, you and your husband and, and his role in, in helping push you and nudge you to Chick-fil-A. I'm also interested in your relationship with faith and you know, your husband being a pastor and, and how faith is also woven throughout your book. Obviously, faith is something that Chick-fil-A has not shied away from, even as our society gets a little more complicated in their relationship with, with religion. So we'll, we'll talk about faith for a little bit, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about your leadership journey. And look, you're someone, I believe, uh, I read it in the book, you were the first female VP at Chick-fil-A. And that's a big deal um, when we think about the historic, um, the historic significance of something like that. But talk about leadership. Where did your leadership come from? How did it get cultivated? Uh, and why did you think that helped serve you, serve Chick-fil-A um, during your career? Well, I had quite the path. If I go way back, when I was eight years old, I wanted to be a writer. My father was an attorney. My mother was educated as an attorney, but didn't practice. She stayed home with us uh, during those years we were growing up, uh, my brother and I. And I just wanted to write. And I started writing. I wrote poems. Uh, when I was in high school, I wrote a, a fictional, uh, I wrote a novel, you know, non-published novel for a project. I was editor-in-chief of our high school were you, uh, were you good at writing or were you, was it something you were being acknowledged for someone? Was your family saying, Hey, you can write like, this is something you're talented at. My family did and, and encouraged me, but I have to tell you, I think that was a time in my life where educators really encouraged me. Janice Bright, my ninth and 12th grade English uh, teacher in my ninth grade high school yearbook. She wrote to me, Deanne, I want a copy of your first autograph book. 
Now, this is a great story, Brian. That didn't happen. That was uh, that was in, I don't know, 19, I was in the ninth grade, somewhere around 1978. My first book was released in 2015, and she was my guest to receive a, an autographed copy at my launch party. So, um, you know, I got a lot of encouragement from that standpoint. I got a lot of encouragement from my journalism uh, advisor, uh, the newspaper advisor there in high school. I went into study journalism uh, in college, my first trip to college. And when I was done, what I realized I was coming out of school a lot like, well, nothing's like now, but we were in a major recession. And, you know, I was not going to find a job as a journalist. I couldn't write at that time because I didn't have any life experience of anything really to write about. So I had to find something else to do to make a living. And so I went into advertising, which is what a lot of journalism majors do. And I was on the advertising firm of it in a culture that was the antithesis of Chick-fil-A. And so my husband, who was a pastor at a church down the street from Chick-fil-A, says to me, he said, why don't you apply at Chick-fil-A? We needed to move into the community we were serving, and um, I needed to get closer to there anyway. I was on the other side of Atlanta. And I said, okay, I knew about Chick-fil-A. I grew up in Atlanta. I ate there, but I didn't know anything about the culture of the business. So I applied, and two weeks later, I received a letter that said, thank you, but no thanks. We don't, we don't have anything that matches your background and experience. So I, was, I told him, I said, well, that's that. I applied. They turned me down. We're done with that. He said, not so fast. Why don't you apply again? So I applied again, trying to get the, a position in marketing and specifically into advertising. Two weeks later, I get a similar letter back, like uh, um, similar to the first one. I got another letter that said, no, thank you. Well, then I was intrigued. It's like, they've turned me down twice. Who are these people? So I began pestering them quite frequently. Now that was, you know, long before email, not long before, but not, it was before email. So I'm sending snail mail letters. I'm calling them constantly, whoever calls anymore, right? So I'm calling constantly, constantly being told no or no one answering at all. And then one day my husband is in the church and a lady comes in and she has a flat tire and she has to use the telephone, no cell phones, remember? So my husband said, that's not necessary. I'll, I'll change the tire for you. So he changed the tire. And when he was done, she gave him a card for a free Chick-fil-A sandwich. He said, oh, do you work at Chick-fil-A? And she said, well, I did, but my husband is being relocated. So I've resigned. He said, what department do you work in? She said, advertising. So he quickly ushered her out of the church. He went and picked up the phone, called me, said they have a job opening in advertising. I hung up the phone with him. I called Chick-fil-A, that sweet little voice who had talked to me for months. Her name was Gail. And I said, Gail, I understand you have an opening in advertising and I'd like to apply for the job. Well, Brian, I think the truth of the matter is they were tired of hearing from me and that they'd go ahead and interview me and get it over with. So they brought me in for an interview and I interviewed and I interviewed and I interviewed. For months, I interviewed for this job in advertising. I finally got to the final interview with the person that was then the vice president of human resources. And he said, um, they're going to offer you this job in advertising, but I have a job in HR that I think you might be interested in. You want to think about it? So I thought about it. And here was my great plan. I was going to go to human resources for a couple of years. That would be fun. That'd be different. And then I'd know where the jobs are in marketing and I'd go back to marketing. Well, I stayed at Chick-fil-A for 33 years and I never did work in marketing. But I like to say that my husband changed my life when he changed a flat tire. 
Well, it's such a beautiful story because it's about service. And the, the fact that he took the time to help that person, he then got the information. The fact that you were persistent and constantly calling them, they were like, all right, we already know, all right, come on in. And then somewhere that HR person maybe saw something in you that maybe they needed on their team. Um, so there's so much in that. I think about my journey and I had a freshman teacher in college. It was a writing 105 class. I submitted something and he just said, you can write. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, like you can write. And that was the first time I had heard that from a teacher. And I think about the fact that I just wrote a book and I, I can't find him. His name was Dan. And I, I don't even remember his last name because he just went by Dan. And, uh, um, but just how grateful I am for him seeing me that way. And a lot of times we don't see our young people and the gifts that they have. And, and I do feel like I, my, my dad's a journalist. I, I could have probably gone into something in that realm. I ended up going into the right field, um, which I think we're both really passionate about just people and developing people. But it, it is an interesting example of those people that see us, whether it's in ninth grade, 12th grade, freshman year of college, or even our spouse, right? Your, your husband knew that you would be a good, have good alignment with what Chick-fil-A was doing. And and I don't want to say the rest is history because I'm sure there was a lot more that went into it. Um, human resources, as you get into that field, did once you got into it, were you still thinking, all right, I'm just going to use this for a couple of years to learn the jobs? Or was it something that pretty soon after you started, you felt like you had alignment with what they were doing and you saw a path for you for yourself from a career standpoint? Well, the most interesting thing happened, that guy who hired me uh, or selected me, as I like to say, he resigned 18 months after I started in human resources. And so I had been pretty connected to him and the company wasn't really sure what they were going to do with me because I worked with him. Uh, but in those 18 months, he taught me a ton and I was really interested in the work I was doing. I was absolutely loving it. And what I was working on at the time is that there were really no systems for selecting talent for the corporate staff. And so the company was growing rapidly, but resumes would come in and they'd float all over the company and people would never hear anything. Truett would get letters. He called them, you done me wrong letters about the way they were treated in the candidate experience. And I was correcting those problems. I was creating the systems. At the time they were manual, obviously later they would become more automated, but trying to put all that process in place. And I was really loving it. And it took the organization a little while. But finally, they figured out I was doing something that they needed to be done. So they promoted me and they kept me in human resources. Well, even a couple of years in, the question that you asked me about path, I really questioned if I was doing what I was supposed to be doing because you asked me about my faith earlier. And I really studied journalism because I had a vision that I was going to use that in some kind of ministry. And while my husband was a pastor, I personally wasn't in the ministry that I thought I was going to be in. Um, and using the gifts and talents that I thought I was going to use. And so for a little while, I struggled with that. And then I realized that God had placed me in a place that my path was to help other people find their path. And so that really became my passion. And I realized that that was my purpose of being there and what I was supposed to do. And I didn't look back for a long, long time. Well, I'm sure we'll get to that writing that first book three decades later, but I really, um, I really saw that as what I was supposed to be doing at the time. And you mentioned faith and, and we can't talk about Chick-fil-A. I mean, not opening on Sundays is remarkable. And I was just on a podcast this morning with somebody and for me, I'll, like I'll be transparent and open. I am 
certainly on a journey when it comes to my faith and in my religious experience. And I definitely am not found. I am an explorer. I am somebody who is um, questioning and constantly un unsure. There is not a whole lot of um, clarity that I have with my relationship with, with religion. And um, you know, that's where I am today. We'll see where I am in 10 years, but I, I will say this, that there is, look, whatever religion you're a part of, they all believe in rest. Like they all believe in having a day of rest. And in this world of smart technology, um, it's hard to find a day to rest. Mm -hmm. And religion which I think sometimes we think like, oh, 100, 200 years ago, it was so different from today. No, they had to work their ass off just like we do. And um, they needed the rest just as much as we do. And you can make an argument that we actually need it more today because we're all seemingly connected to our phones and the internet 24-7. For you, um, having this idea of, hey, I'd love to work in ministry. My husband's a pastor the alignment of faith with Chick-fil-A and this statement that we're going to close our stores on Sunday. And I don't have any idea of what McDonald's or Popeye's or Burger King does on Sunday, but I would imagine Sunday is a pretty big day for fast food restaurants. Um, when you were in it and you were w working with the, the leadership, talk about the relationship that they had to religion, to faith, and how that guided how they thought about business and, and decisions. Well, Truett Cathy himself was a Christian. And so when he founded his business and as he grew, particularly as he grew the business, he grew a lot in his own faith during those years. But as he grew the business, he said, he was known for saying, in fact, he testified in Washington um, about this. He said, I don't really see a difference between biblical principles and good business principles. And so he would never call his company a Christian company. Um, as I worked there during my time there, we would never say, of course, you wouldn't have a business that was only Christians. That's, um, but because he operated his business on biblical principles, he did attract a lot of people that shared his faith there. But he was a business person and he thought, you know, things like treating others with honor, dignity and respect, um, not opening his business on Sunday, being a good steward of time, talent and treasure. All of those things to him, he felt like were good business practices. And one of the reasons I stayed so long, uh, Truett passed away in 2014. So I'd been at Chick-fil-A for 29 years before he died and working very closely with him on the culture of Chick-fil-A. And um, he, we haven't really gone into it, but how much he taught me about people selection and those things. Um, and the reason I stayed is because he, one of the th reasons is because of how consistent he was. He really walked his talk. And he didn't talk nearly as much about it as he just behaved in a way that was reflective of those beliefs that I've um, talked about. So if he talked about treating with everyone with honor, dignity and respect, that's how he treated people. And um, for me, that was that was how I saw all that lived out. But I don't think it's about religion. I don't even think it's about faith. I think it's about good business principles that reflected who he was as an individual. Um, that's who he was personally. Um, but then to say, you know, really, I'm, I'm founding this business and I'm growing this business based on biblical principles. The closed on Sunday is an interesting thing, by the way, just real quickly, Brian. True, it, um, it, it wasn't so much an expression of his spiritual beliefs. 
uh, about why he closed on Sunday. That first Saturday he was open, he ran a business. It was 24 hours a day. And when he got to Saturday night, he said, I'm tired. And if I'm tired, the rest of these people are tired too. We're going to be closed tomorrow. Now, 1946, that was not so unusual. Most businesses were closed on Sunday. You'd be hard pressed to find something that was open. But Truett um, did close his business. But as he grew and as the business grew, um, particularly when he got to 1967 and he started the Chick-fil-A chain and he started, he opened his first restaurant and he was going into malls. Well, in the late 60s and early 70s, when he was really growing this thing, you probably know that Sunday was the busiest day of the week for malls. And he would go into them and he, and they would say, Hey, we'd love to have you, but you'll need to be open on Sunday. And he never wavered in that commitment. He said, no, I can't be open on Sunday. By that time, it was a reflection of who he was as, as a Christian um, and the way he was brought up. But it was also because he knew it was good for business. He knew that he got great team members because most of his team members were teenagers and their parents really enjoyed that they were home on at least one day a week to, to be with the family, to worship if they wished, to, um, to get caught up on their homework, to do all and to be involved in other activities. And so he knew that was, that was a good thing too. And so he made that commitment. Sooner or later, he started opening the freestanding locations that we're all so familiar with now. And more and more malls began to close as malls have, have now not become a, a major focus of business. But um, for a while there, he had to really, uh, you know, there was some loss there uh, because he made that choice, but he stayed convicted. And like I said, that's one of the reasons I stayed so long is to see somebody who actually lived out their convictions. You mentioned people selection and that he helped you learn people selection and bet on talent is, is about people. And, you know, there's two elements that you really focus on in the book. There are the franchisees and then there's customer. And you talk about being on the other side. You talk, I mean, being on vacation and hotels, not getting, giving you the customer service that you thought you should. And then you give tons of examples of extraordinary customer service. Service. Talk about how you think about people selection, either from Truett or obviously I'm sure you evolved to create your own way of thinking about it as well as you learn more and more about the work that you would do. So talk about people selection or, or betting on talent and how you think about that. Sure. Well, first of all, I believe that people decisions are the most important decisions we make in any business. If we think about it, you know, and, and that's why the title is, by the way, bet on talent. People say, why did you name it that? Well, you know, some organizations bet on strategy. They bet on technology. They bet on marketing. They bet on choosing great real estate locations. All those things are extraordinarily important. But if you don't have the right people to execute all those things, then it really won't matter how good your strategy or your marketing or your technology or your real estate choices are. You've got to have great talent. So people decisions are the most important. Out of all the people decisions, I think that selection is the most important of those decisions. Because if um, you don't select the right people, it, then you know all the other decisions that come after it, who you promote, how you grow and develop people, how you train them, how you onboard them, how you compensate them, none of those will be decisions will be right unless that first one of selection is. Hey, Dan, can you dive into selection real quick? So yeah. I've done work for uh, professional sports teams where they bring me in to interview players at the draft. And so my job is to interview them, create a profile on their mindset, and, and then I create you know, a profile for the team. What did you all emphasize when it came to talent selection? You even talked about, 
you call them multiple times, finally get your foot in the door, then go through a bunch of interviews. Where are you on assessment tools, interviews, just the blocking and tackling of, of bringing on quality talent? How do you think about it? So Brian, I generally start kind of big picture and then drill down. So the big picture of what I would be evaluating is three things, character, competency, and chemistry. What do I mean by character? Well, character that matches the organization. If you think about it, your organization is made up, your culture of your organization is made up of the sum total of the character of the people in your organization. So, you know, I define culture just really quickly as a meaningful purpose, a challenging mission, and demonstrated core values. Does this individual align? Doesn't mean they have to match perfectly, but does their own personal purpose, mission, and values, do those align with those of the organization? So character that matches the organization. Secondly, competency that matches the role. We all know what competency is. We're looking for people who can get done what you need to get done. But you need to look a step beyond that. If you're really forward thinking and you want to grow your organization with the people that you've invested so much in selecting, then you're looking for competency for roles that may not even be in your organization yet. So you're looking for bench strength, competency for not just the current role, but can this per- does this person have competency for the future? And then lastly is chemistry. And sometimes people think, and by that I mean chemistry that matches the team, but some people think chemistry is all about everybody just getting along, holding hands, singing kumbaya, all that stuff. Chemistry is so much more than that. In fact, people who are really effective with their chemistry know how to do this. They know how to bring their different perspective into a group, collaborate with the group members, find the common ground, the win-win, and influence positively that group. That's real chemistry. People who manage that kind of diversity well and are able to bring exactly who they are to the table and influence the whole team, that's great chemistry. So from the big picture, those are the three things I'm looking at. Character, competence, chemistry, yes. I would imagine part of your job would also be firing people um, at times. Which of those typically would get in the way of somebody working well at Chick-fil-A? Character, competency, or chemistry? Well, before I can answer that, I have to tell you a little bit of philosophy around what you just said about employee terminations. First of all, we didn't have very many when I worked at Chick-fil-A. And the reason is, is because Truett emphasized from the very beginning that he didn't want to do that. He wanted us to make the right people decisions to begin with, make great selections, invest in selections, and you won't have to terminate people. So in fact, when I first started in human resources, as it was called then at Chick-fil-A, I didn't have a separation budget. I had a very healthy selection budget to spend money and time to bring the right people into the organization. I wouldn't ask where the separation budget was. And the president of the company said, well, we don't have one because Truett doesn't plan on making any changes. So um, now with that being said, you realize it was a rare event. What happened most often? What happened most often, I would say, is that we had circumstances that people because we selected first for character, occasionally you would have people that the company was growing so quickly, they couldn't keep up from a competency standpoint. And when that happened, um, by the way, since people decisions were the most important decisions we made, Truett held really till late, late, late in his life. Um, uh, He left the business, uh, he passed away in 2014, and in 2013, he left the business. And up to that point, he held the most important people decisions. Who gets selected, who's terminated, and how they're compensated. 
And so if you wanted to terminate somebody, you had to go talk to Truett about it. And he would ask you, what did you do? What have you tried to do to make this person successful? And we might name two or three things. And he'd say, go try again. So 30 days later, you'd come back and you say, okay, Truett, this still isn't working. We need to terminate this person. And he'd tell you, he said, you selected them, try harder. Now, he was a very smart man because we didn't come back very often after 90 days. Because you know what? If you went back and you evaluated, did I train them? Were they in the right role? Maybe they just need a different role. Maybe they need a different leader. Whatever the cases were, he really wanted us to find a way to make each person that had a competency issue successful. And so we would do that. And very oftentimes, we never had to go back at 90 days. It's, now, it, that part's really interesting because a lot of people believe in the adage of hire slow, fire fast. But for you all, it sounds like hire slow, fire slow. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because I mean, that was part of what Truett said, climb with care and confidence, you know, and, um, and I think it comes from his background in the depression. You know, he saw people lose their jobs, sometimes of no fault of their own. He saw the devastation in families for that to happen. It was part of the reason he kept the corporate office so lean. It was really hard to get new positions approved. I mean, we in those early days, we were working like crazy. I mean, I can't tell you all the hours we worked because Truett didn't want to add any new staff. Um, he didn't want the overhead. But more importantly, he didn't want there to come a day that he had to lay any of those people off because he saw that happen during the Depression. He was very committed to that. Well, um, the, uh, the corporate dynamic, you know, having a corporate and then you've got these restaurants. And you mentioned earlier, a lot of these restaurants are employing young people and this is their first job. What percentage of corporate was people that had come up through the restaurant in some capacity? Was that a pipeline of talent that you could grab from or, or was it very separate as it related to corporate and in the, in the restaurants? Not necessarily. So among franchisees about when I was there about 66 percent of franchisees came from team members and at the corporate office it was about 30 percent had some kind of Chick-fil-A experience in the past I have no idea how that is now but that's how it was coming along so there were people that had that restaurant experience now there was not a career path to from being a team member to go through some kind of development at that time into becoming a a corporate staff. Some of that came later in leadership development programs and so forth that were implemented. But early on, it was it just happened that way that people later came back after finishing their education or whatever and applied to be part of the corporate office. And back to the corporate, because that's where you were, resumes. So we're at a point now where college education, some people think it's more important now than ever. Others are saying, hey, when you're applying for a job, I don't even care where you went to college. As I'm thinking about what you were looking for in, in the talent, how important was someone's resume? And the, the second piece to this is that you came in with this different background and then went to HR. Uh, were you looking for specialists? Were you looking for more broader range? As you were thinking about character, competency, chemistry, how important was it that somebody was educated in a, a certain lane or path or field? Well, we were growing as a, at that time, we were growing significantly and, and we had to have people who had capability in a lot of different disciplines. Um, so, you know, we had a very large accounting staff, uh, for instance, taking care of all those restaurants. We had, um, we needed disciplines in the legal area, in the real estate field. Uh, there was, there were more generalist opportunities in operations and 
even in marketing in some ways, but there were a lot of specialist roles too. So obviously education was pretty important um, for a number of those specialists. In those days, early days, a lot of people were coming right out of school into Chick-fil-A. It was, it was a little more than a startup when I first started there. Um, I mean, size-wise, that's what people would call it. When I arrived, there were 100, it was 150 million in revenues and 175 restaurants. So um, we were still really young. But, you know, I think education, and I think what was most important, I mean, I know what was most important in those early days I was evaluating education. It wasn't the completion of it. Uh, excuse me, it wasn't um, the degree or what it was in at that time. It was the completion. Did you finish what you started? And um, I think that either choosing um, out of high school to get a trade education or to get a college education is really, really important because I think it's about all the skills you learn that have nothing to do with the accounting class or the marketing class or the organizational uh, development class. I'm thinking about my own college juniors. I'm rattling these things off. It's what you learn about how to work about how to study, about how to learn, because if you're going to be successful today in just about anything, you're going to have to be a lifelong learner. And so I think that's what education, post-secondary education does for anybody, is teaches them the skills to continue learning. And that's what I think is most important. When you think about learning, I know you all are big on retreats. So there's this epic retreat that gets talked about where Chick-fil-A really shifts their focus to a mission-minded approach and and really thinks about service. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think you were around after that occurred, but uh, your perspective on how that retreat impacted. And then they have a retreat facility called the Windshape Foundation where they do all kinds of stuff at as well. Um, and so just give me a sense of how retreats play a role in culture uh, and, and what you observed at Chick-fil-A. Yeah, so I think what you're referring to, Chick-fil-A um, did a couple of things. They, in the past, they've had their annual operators. It was called Seminar. The title of it currently is Next, um, which is hard to understand if you're not in the nomenclature of the culture. But this was an annual meeting of all the Chick-fil-A operators and their spouses, the Chick-fil-A staff and their spouses, fully paid for by the company. And it started out as just a few people, and you're right, that actually preceded me. It started out as just a few franchisees meeting with Truett uh, early on. But the idea was to come together once a year uh, in an effort to um, focus on what had been accomplished in the previous year, review results of that, um, to focus on the future. I used to say uh, back in those days, and it covered all the Asians, it was motivation, recreation, uh, inspiration, all of those things. Um, but just, it was important to the culture. It's how we all stay connected, if you will. In later years, we started a similar event that was just a one-day event for the Chick-fil-A staff that really focused on the learning and development needs of those parts of the organization that serve Chick-fil-A operators. Um, so those were kind of the big events. Uh, you've mentioned Windshape, Windshape a, a separate um, entity, and, and you were referring to Windshape Wilderness. Uh, which was started at, on the campus of Barry College and provides retreat um, facilities for corporations uh, having, you know, team retreats and so forth, ropes course type of experience and opportunities to grow their teams. And I, I think you mentioned in the book this retreat where uh, they came together and really focused on their mission of service. And 
how, and then they came back and they had uh, either a statue or something like that. They put it up in, in front of corporate and said, Hey, this is what we're going to do going forward. And I think it was less focus on profit and more focus on mission and, and service. Um, you know what I'm referring to? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when uh, it was 1982 and something happened at Chick-fil-A that had never happened before. And that year Chick-fil-A had a slump in sales. And they, um, th- on top of that, Truett had just completed the corporate campus that was on 76 acres just south of the airport there in Atlanta. And so he found himself in quite a precarious position. A first ever slump in sales. Remember, this was 82. He'd been in business since 46, never had this happen. And he was deeply in debt. So what do organizations do when that happens? Well, they cut budgets, they lay people off, they might have a new sales contest to try to get things going. So Truett did take his uh, executive committee off on a retreat um, to spend some time talking about what they would do about this situation. They were to be gone for three days. The first half day, they talked about some of the options I just mentioned. And halfway through the very first day, one of them asked this simple question, why are we here? What is our why? And this was before, of course, it was before Simon Sinek and Start With Why. It was before anybody was thinking about purpose or much about culture, actually. And Truett um, and, and his team thought about that, and they came up with a statement of why. And they came back to what was then called the corporate office, now called the support center, and they shared it with the staff there. And the staff loved it. They loved it so much that they had it carved in bronze and put on a granite stone and at the front door. And this is what it said. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us to be a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And they put it at the front door so that every day when they came to work, they would remember their why. Because you know what? How in the world could I work for somewhere for 33 years if it was just about selling good chicken? I mean, that's just not motivating. But if it's about being a positive influence and a faithful steward, well, that's totally different. And to have that opportunity and the freedom to live that out every day of my career, well, that was motivating. And so I really believe, um, well, in fact, it's factual. It, it changed everything for Chick-fil-A. Um, certainly when I left in 2018, this was the case, and I believe it's still true today. Um, but Chick-fil-A has never had a some. I can say this, Chick-fil-A has never had a slump in sales since then. And in 2018, two full years ahead of uh, plans, they met their 2020 sales goal. And in 2012, they became debt-free. And probably most amazing to me as an HR, as a former HR person in, in the work that I've done all these last 35 years, is that they maintained a 95% retention rate of both their corporate staff and their franchisees. And those franchisees still maintain one of the lowest turnover rates in the industry. And so knowing their why made all the difference for Chick-fil-A. And uh, I think that's true of any organization who makes such a commitment and then goes on to live it out. You also, I want to go to you in a minute, but they also, I think, are the most profitable fast food chain in the country. I read that as I was doing some research. It's just remarkable. And anecdotally, uh, where I live, anywhere you go, where there's a Chick-fil-A, there seems to be a line of cars, uh, certainly right now, where a lot of people are just doing drive-through. Uh, but it's remarkable to see how those cars move and, and sort of the orchestra 
of, of their movements. And I know in my area, we've got small kids getting Chick-fil-A nuggets at a birthday party when we did have in-person birthday parties was not good for me, but was, was very enjoyable to have those, those little Chick-fil-A nuggets at, at our birthday parties. You know, it's interesting. I, my wife recently uh, ordered gym mats for our home gym, like those mats that you can put on the carpet so that it, it, it feels like a gym and we wanted to expand it. So just the other day she ordered them and one piece was missing. So we're missing one piece. And the woman that works at the store said, you know what? this was 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away. And my wife didn't want to drive there. Uh, she's like, look, I got two small kids. I don't want to drive. And the one's like, you know what? I'll come drop it off on my way home from work. And that customer service blew us away. I mean, we, we ended up tipping her 20 bucks, but I do worry that in the world of Amazon that we live in, that those experiences are becoming less and less um, of a thing. And as you think about customer service and what you witnessed at Chick-fil-A and what you've witnessed outside of it, what do you think is underneath great customer service? Is it the why? Is it something deeper than that? What inspires that woman to come drop it off at our house when she doesn't have to, she's in a pandemic, just like the rest of us. Um, you know, what do you think moves people to do that? Well, I think that whoever, whatever business that is that you were working with, obviously, knows in their selection that you've got to select people that are there to serve. If you want to have great customer service, then you have to have people who want to serve. And I think that's, you know, I, I tell a story often and uh, I won't take the time to tell the whole story, but just real quickly, I had this horrible experience with a rental car company back not long ago, long before, uh, a little while before COVID. And I had this, uh, the, basically they sent me away in an unsafe car the tire on the car went flat and um, they wanted me to either pay them to change the tire or, or change it myself. And like I said, I'm making this a really short, much shorter story than what happened. But when the guy goes to change the uh, guy changed it at a Marriott hotel for me, when he changed the tire, he said, this wasn't this tire's first rodeo. Look, it's been plugged. And so they sent me away in that. And I go back and again, I go through, some problems returning the car. And it was just, a, it was a nightmare experience, the worst rental car experience ever. And then I compare that to another experience that I'd had nearly 30 years previously when my husband and I went on a, a trip that was a vacation trip and we actually had coupons for a free car. And this woman was absolutely unbelievable about going over and beyond. Um, we were supposed to get an economy class car. She gives us, we're in Hawaii for an anniversary trip and she gives us a a brand new Ford GT Mustang uh, convertible to drive. And it was in the midst of some customer service issues that they were having uh, because of overcommitment, but she just took really good care of us. The most amazing thing is it was the same car company. So I asked the question, how can, you know, two experiences be in such stark contrast to one another and be the same company? Well, simply this. The difference between an amazing customer experience and a poor customer experience is simply one employee who cares about the customer. And so you had that experience. And I hope every employee in that store is like the one that you had. I've had multiple experiences like that at Chick-fil-A and other places where I just was so cared about. It starts with selection. You can teach a lot of principles, but if you don't select people that have a passion for serving other people, 
then you're not likely to have a person that's going to do a good job serving other people. So the selection part of it's incredibly important. And you, you know, we mentioned earlier, you become the first female VP. Uh, you wear multiple hats at Chick-fil-A and, you know, head up multiple initiatives and human resources is an interesting, we're at an interesting time when it comes to human resources, because I think a lot of human resource leaders have been bogged down in dealing with firing and dealing with uh, compliance um, issues. And then there's another sector of it that's really into the people, the culture, the development. And for you being the first female, what did, what did that mean to you? Um, what does it mean to you today? Um, how important is it? And how do you think about that um, in today's society? Well, I probably reflect back on it more than I thought much of it at the time, um, because at the time I was doing work that I absolutely loved uh, in an organization that I adored with people that I cared for deeply and cared for me. And so it was just, you know, that was just the next um, job for me to do was to um, serve that role. But I did realize at the time what I thought most about is what responsibility came with being the first. And when you're the first of anyone, whatever it is, um, when you're the first, it comes with great responsibility because you can't mess up. If you mess up, you'll mess up the path for everybody else. And so um, what I'm most proud of from that situation is to look back and see all the people who have followed and great, talented women who came after me, who, who are smarter than I am, who are better at leading than I am, um, but to know that it did open the door. I'm most grateful, um, probably I would have to say the single biggest influence would have been uh, at the time, Chick-fil-A's president, Jimmy Collins, uh, who worked very closely with Truett. He was the first non-family president of the organization. And he championed me and sponsored me and mentored me, held me accountable. He was very tough on me. Um, but you know, when you're the first female in an organization, you can't get there without other men helping you. And um, while it was very difficult and challenging at times, Jimmy was a great um, help and a great mentor for me to be able to navigate that. So, um, you know, I, I think that those opportunities in life just come with tremendous responsibility. As a man, and I'm sure there are plenty of men that are going to listen to this, what can we do to make sure that we are allies and, and, and helping women uh, thrive in, in business? You know, interestingly, most of my audiences are men. I've always worked with all men. I live in a family. I'm married to my husband and have three grown sons. And we even had all male dogs. So um, I'm used to that surrounding. But as men, I think the important thing to do is, um, I mean, that women have to have sponsors. And if, if there aren't uh, a lot of well, even if there are, I always encouraged uh, women who would come to me and ask me to mentor them. I was happy to help them, but I always encourage them to find male mentors too, especially in an organization that's dominated by male leaders. You have to understand the way they think, and you can only understand that from a man. You know, I can t only tell you so much, but it's good to hear it in person. And I had I had a number of them, and you learn. I mean, some of them were better than others. I mean, some I I, I learned things that I wish I didn't know. You know, I mean, that just happens. Um, but some. Um, that were so helpful were the ones who, who listened to me and then said, hey, this is the truth. And telling somebody the truth is the number one most important thing. This is what you've got to improve in. This is what you have to get over. 
my very first boss at Chick-fil-A, I hadn't been there very long. And he came out to my desk and he said, okay, you're young and you're female. Now get over it and win them over with your competence. That was probably the single most important piece of advice I ever received. And I hung on to that. You know, one of those options um, took care of itself. I did eventually get older. And the other was just to focus on leading with my competence, being sure that they understand what, what I was capable of and serving people. Um, and I think that for men, that's what they can do. They can tell the young woman that they're mentoring the truth and um, help them. Uh, don't, don't hold anything back. Give them the last 10% as one of my leaders at Chick-fil-A used to, used to like to say. You mentioned raising three boys. Any advice for somebody? I've got a three and a half year old and almost five year old. Um, any advice for me and my wife as we raise our kids and, um, you know, look, having a career, my wife works as well, um, how we can continue to, uh, you know, crush our career as your next book is called, um, how we can do that while being uber successful as a husband and father, which, which are really important to me. Sure. Well, you've already said, you've already stated how important it is to you. So that's the first step. And my husband and I had to work together if both of us were going to work. And he, he was a pastor. He actually, it's quite a story probably for another podcast, Brian, but he became an air traffic controller and, uh, and spent 20 years doing that when we were raising our family. And so he had demands and I had a different set of demands and we worked together. You know, Truett used to say, it's really important who you pick as your master, your mate, and your mission. And I couldn't have been the successful person if I, I am if I had not married who I married. And my husband, Ashley, has been tremendous support, but we supported each other. The other thing we did was that we realized for a season in time, and our boys now are 30, 26, and 21. And we realized for a season that there are some things that just aren't very important. And um, not everybody can do this, but for people who are able to, if there are things you can outsource in your life, outsource it. My kids didn't care um, how we got the groceries. I mean, if I had to have them delivered, which, you know, some people can do that now, that was an option for me. Or if I had to have somebody go get them for me, they didn't care who did the laundry. They didn't care who changed their sheets. They cared if I was at their baseball game or their basketball game or their football game. They cared that I tucked them in at night. Um, they cared that my husband was there for those things. And so that's what I encourage you to do, to figure out with your family what's most important and do those things. And you know what? They'll be gone soon enough and you'll have all the time in the world to clean your house and do the laundry. And um, you'll, be, you'll be glad because you'll have all these great memories of doing all those things with them. Um, and you'll look back on that. And so you, you, can, you can do all those things. You can crush your career and have a great family life and be influential on your children, but you have to work together and you have to decide what your priorities are and then you have to stick to it. I love that. So let's start winding down here. And you mentioned entrepreneurship is something that your Chick-fil-A fran franchisees had to have and almost the gift that they received to go create their own business and uh, to think like an entrepreneur and to be principle-based rather than rule-based. For you, you took a leap and uh, quote unquote, I guess, retired from Chick-fil-A. But here you are ripping and running for a few years, writing books. Uh, you've written two. There's another one on the way. What's it like been? What's it like 
for you being an entrepreneur after many, many years being inside a, a corporate ecosystem? That sounds lovely and great, but it's still a, a, a big corporate organization. Uh, what's it been like for you sort of being on your own and, and being an entrepreneur? True entrepreneurs, you'll find, and, and I did when I was interviewing them uh, to be Chick-fil-A franchisees, these are roots that start early in life. And so I had my first entrepreneurial uh, adventure before I was 10 years old. And what I did was I ran a candy store. Our, our home happened to be on the route from through the neighborhood to the neighborhood swimming pool. And so I had a friend that was in the grocery business and I would buy from him wholesale candy and drinks. And I would set those up for the kids leaving to go to the swimming pool in the morning. They'd come through and get it. It was um, the same price as the grocery store and cheaper than the vending machines at the swimming pool. In the afternoon, they'd pick up their pre, um, pre-dinner snack on their way home after swimming all day. And those were my early entrepreneurial roots. And I can follow that through. And anybody I ever interviewed, I always ask them, tell me the first thing you ever sold. And if it was something they sold in college when they were in their fraternity, that might not necessarily be an entrepreneur. A real entrepreneur starts early in life. And so I always wanted to have my own business. Even all that time I was working at Chick-fil-A, I kind of knew it would end up this way. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. And I wrote my first book, It's My Pleasure, in 2015 and released it. And it did um, just tremendously well. And I finally got to check that dream off and I thought that was it. And then Baker Books came along a couple of years later and offered me a contract to write two more. And I thought, oh, I'm living the dream. You know, I always wanted to do this. And I had the opportunity to retire and start my own business. And I have to tell you, I'm having a blast, Brian. Um, I loved every single day. Well, almost every single day of my corporate life. Uh, but Every day is an adventure and I'm just having a ball doing it. And tell us about your next book. So we talked a lot about Bet on Talent. It's my pleasure. Uh, I read Bet on Talent, really enjoyed it, especially if you are somebody in an organization and trying to think about all the things that Deanne has talked about. Uh, I think she hit the nail on the head where you got to get the right people on the bus. And uh, if you don't have the right people on the bus, it's it's hard. It, it becomes a lot more difficult. And um, from the time you have them on the bus, there's a lot of different options and pathways and what might've worked for her and at Chick-fil-A might not be the path for you. But I think we can all agree that finding what talent does work for your organization and spending a lot of time and investing in that process is great. But talk to us about your next book, uh, Crush Your Career and, and what you think about that. Yeah. So if Bet on Talent was the book that I wrote for leaders to learn how to find and keep extraordinary talent, I wrote Crush Your Career to teach talent how to be extraordinary. So it's Crush Your Career, Ace the Interview, Land the Job, and Launch Your Future. And this book starts, it actually starts from part-time, getting a part-time job to interviewing for your first career position to um, how to conquer your first 90 days to the minefields that you have to navigate. I share a lot of my own stories and more of them are about my mistakes than my successes because I think people learn more from um, other people's lessons. And so I share a lot of stories about my own career and um, helping people. And it's really the life cycle of work from, like I said, from part-time work all the way to retirement. How do you do all these things? It's a handbook for work. And, uh, and I hope that um, come March when that's released on March 2nd, 
that a lot of your listeners will be interested in either um, a book for themselves or a book for somebody they mentor or lead or coach or their child or um, any of those um, folks that fall into that category. It's interesting for me. I, I graduated from college and I was such a lost puppy. Uh, no clue what I wanted to do and bounced around a couple of jobs and was really fortunate to have a mentor guide me and direct me to sports psychology, which is what I ended up pursuing. And um, if it wasn't for her, I do not know where I would be career wise. And so shout out to Julie, just really appreciative for having lunch. We were not at Chick-fil-A. We were at the Cheesecake Factory. Don't hold it against us. Um, we probably ate more than we needed to at the Cheesecake Factory. But um, you know, I, hopefully this book can serve as people's Julie and can help mentor them and help them find their way. I probably get more calls for people looking for career coaching than anything else. And I actually don't do a lot of career coaching because it's not my wheelhouse. Um, but I'll be excited to recommend your book when I do get those calls so that people can help have a guide for how they can have a fulfilling and meaningful career, which there's no question that, that you have had and are continuing to have. So um, where can people find out about you, your books, what you're up to? I also know you do a whole lot of speaking. Uh, so if a company wants to book you for a speaking gig, uh, where can people find out more about you? Sure. Well, first of all, my website is D-N-D-E-E-A-N-N-Turner-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. You can um, find me on Facebook at Author on Instagram at Deanne Turner, on Twitter at Deanne Turner, and on LinkedIn. And then if um, you're interested in me speaking to your group, just shoot me an email, Deanne at DeanneTurner.com, or go to my website and there's a place to inquire there as well. Books are available. By the way, It's My Pleasure is no longer available, um, but that's okay because all the content of It's My Pleasure and more is in Bet on Talent. So it's the new and revised version under a new publisher. And uh, it's, I think it's a better book. So if you're looking for it, don't sweat it. Some people are selling them for astronomical amounts of money on Amazon. Don't buy it. Just buy Bet on Talent. Uh, and then Crush Your Career is available for pre-order on Amazon now and be out on March the 2nd. That makes me feel so much better because I found you, as I mentioned, I had clients mention you and then I we connected on social media. And I'm like, all right, I want to go read uh, your books. And it's my pleasure. It's like 45 bucks on Amazon. And I was like, oh, should I buy it? I'm like, oh, well, don't I just buy it, Bet on Talent. So I read Bet on Talent. One of the beauties of having a podcast is it forces you to make sure you get to read the things that you want to read anyway, and it makes you have a deadline that you have to read them by. So um, thank you for that gift. I, en I enjoy reading it and I'm glad I, I purchased it and, and we'll share nuggets and gems from it. Uh, for, for many, many years. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Podcast is uh, on Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And also you can follow me at Instagram at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn, which is, I think, where we both like to play a lot. Uh, I'm at Brian Levinson there. Deanne, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for all you do and all you're doing for the world. You're, you're definitely a shining light and, and serving in the way that you've set out to do. So I appreciate you and grateful that we can connect and looking forward to connecting you in the future and maybe even sharing lunch or a cup of coffee when you come through Washington, D.C. in the future. That sounds fantastic. Thank you, Brian, so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The big picture of what I would be evaluating is three things, character, competency, and chemistry. What do I mean by character? Well, character that matches the organization. If you think about it, your organization is made up 
your culture of your organization is made up of the sum total of the character of the people in your organization. So, you know, I define culture just really quickly as a meaningful purpose, a challenging mission, and demonstrated core values. Does this individual align? Doesn't mean they have to match perfectly, but does their own personal purpose, mission, and values, do those align with those of the organization? So character that matches the organization. Secondly, competency that matches the role. We all know what competency is. We're looking for people who can get done what you need to get done. But you need to look a step beyond that. If you're really forward thinking and you want to grow your organization with the people that you've invested so much in selecting, then you're looking for competency for roles that may not even be in your organization yet. So you're looking for bench strength, competency for not just the current role, but can this per does this person have competency for the future? And then lastly is chemistry. And sometimes people think, and by that I mean chemistry that matches the team, but some people think chemistry is all about everybody just getting along, holding hands, singing kumbaya, all that stuff. Chemistry is so much more than that. In fact, people who are really effective with their chemistry know how to do this. They know how to bring their different perspective into a group, collaborate with the group members, find the common ground, the win-win, and influence positively that group. 